Yeah, awesome. Thank you, Trish. <laughs> How's everyone doing? Come on, we are in the middle of the series, the Spirit series. And uh, um, if you guys don't remember, we began this year talking about the theme of 2007, which is the uh, presence-driven life. Uh, so we, we've been doing this series. We basically uh, started this series a few months ago with that theme in mind. This all fits into that theme of a presence-driven life. And that's not something that, you know, is, is just a catchphrase that, you know, it's actually really important that the one thing that distinguishes us from the people of God is that we're a people of the presence. And that's what I've been trying to get at this series is to re-emphasize how crucial this uh, is for our walk in the Lord. Okay, so the Spirit, uh, unfortunately, one of the urgencies that I have that I've been talking about, and this is why we've been hammering this home uh, so much, is that the Holy Spirit uh, has often been given short shrift in the church. And that, that's really unfortunate. So we pay lip service to the Holy Spirit. Um, but for the most part, we kind of neglect him. And we don't develop or, or pay much attention to theology in the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, you could go months without mentioning the Holy Spirit. No one would even blink an eye because that's just so common. And so what we've been doing is really trying to focus on and show how important the Holy Spirit is in New Testament theology, especially in the early church. Um, and how many of you know we want congruent theology with the early church, right? The apostles, come on. So uh, we've been really trying to hit this home this idea that the Spirit plays a crucial role and is at the heart of everything in New Testament theology, okay? Uh, and so, the, so I've been tr de trying to develop this idea and really focusing on theology uh, for the last uh, w few weeks especially. And what, w uh, just for a review or for those of you who are new here, th these three things are at the heart of New Testament theology, Okay, And the Holy Spirit, you'll see, plays a crucial role in all three of them. And we've been kind of hitting on them um, each because they're so integral and they're so related to each other. But we've been really focusing on the first one, which is that the Spirit is the key to the eschatological perspective. The whole end, and what that means is the end times. And so we're going to talk a little bit about this today, just for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. But last time, we, we the last couple times actually, we've been really showing you and spending time on this. And if you were here at the beginning of the year, when I did the Kingdom of God series, essentially that's the whole uh, uh, thing we focused on, is the Kingdom of God, is to be understood in this framework. And now this isn't, the, this isn't the most important concept in the New Testament, but it is the most important framework because all the New Testament writers had this end time perspective in common. And if you can grasp what this means, the fact that Jesus said the kingdom is here, yet he, there's a whole bunch of times he said the kingdom is yet to come, this already not yet end time perspective the church had. And so... For us to live like the early church did, it's so important that we understand what their New Test, what the perspective was, what what framework they had, um, the urgencies they had, and the Holy Spirit plays a fundamental role in this. And so, um, spent the last couple times talking about that. But also, the Spirit's the key to the experience dimension of salvation in Christ, and this is the central issue in the New Testament. Now, we have, we've only been scratching the surface on that. We're going to spend some time on salvation because that's so important. 
really what I've been focusing on is this eschatological framework in different ways to get at salvation, okay? Because salvation is to be totally understood within this framework. And so to build that foundation is important. And then the Spirit's the key what it, for what it means for us to become the people of God. And that's the, the central goal is for God to create a people for his name. Since you see this throughout the Old Testament, to create a people for his name, a people of the presence. Uh, and so if you're interested, I spoke all on that uh, um, in the second message in this series. But we're going to really go into the detail in the third point in the future as well. So just for review, the Old Testament had, always has this forward look to it. Ever since the fall, you see that God was promising all throughout that he was going to redeem his pe people once again to restore what was lost in the garden. So you have all of these promises throughout, starting even with Abraham, that he's going to be a blessing to all the nations. And what's interesting... Actually, we'll talk about that in the future. I want to stay on track. But the whole point is there's all these promises throughout that God is going to restore things and that there's going to be a, a restoration and redemption in the latter days. So we see all these promises, especially throughout the prophets, in the latter days. In the latter days, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And, I, and, and in the context of salvation, it's always about this new covenant promise that's going to happen in the latter days, the end times, the day of the Lord. Okay? But what's interesting is when we get to the New Testament, this has been fulfilled in Christ in the Spirit. Okay, so Jesus Christ came, his death and resurrection. We talked about the resurrection of Christ and the gift of the Spirit last week. If you remember, that was, those are the two things that marked the end. They knew that when those two things happened, the end times were here and we were in the latter days, the day of the Lord. The resurrection from the dead and the gift of the Spirit. And those two things already happened. Okay, already, we're living in the end times. Yet, they knew that it hadn't happened in its fullness, because not everyone was raised from the dead. So the resurrection of Christ set this in motion. The end has dawned, okay, but it's not yet been finalized. It's not yet been cons uh, consummated. Okay, so all of these promises they are waiting for throughout the entire New Testament, especially the prophets, hundreds of years happened. And that... But they had to reconcile the fact that they thought when it happened, the kingdom of God would come in its fullness, overthrow Satan completely, and it would be completely good. All of sin, sickness, disease, the age of Satan would be totally overthrown. Then it would be the, the age of the Spirit, the kingdom of God, and that was known as the day of the Lord. But what, what happened is a shift had to take place in their idea because that was the consensus, God did come, Jesus, the Messiah did come, the Spirit came, but yet there's still sin, sickness, disease, and oppression. So how do you reconcile that? And they got their idea from Jesus. Because Jesus' main message in the Synoptic Gospels was the kingdom of God. And, G and according to Jesus, the kingdom's here. This is fulfilled in your hearing. The kingdom of God is at hand. Yet you see all these promises when the Son of Man comes in his glory and his kingdom. Okay? So they had to reconcile this idea. Oh, the day of the Lord has begun. We are in the last days. But it's not yet fulfilled. And so we're awaiting for it to be completely fulfilled at the second coming of Christ. So it's the, it, this is an interesting thing. 
In their minds, we are in the end times. We are in the day of the Lord. We are in the latter days. So the latter days now become the last days. And you see this in the book of Acts. Because they're waiting for the outpoured spirit, Joel chapter 2, 28, when God says, in the last days, I'll pour up my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men dream dreams, have visions. All that stuff is what they're waiting for. And that became totally an end time. They, in their mind, that was the day of the Lord. Then the one thing that would mark it is the spirit. So on the day of Pentecost, when the spirit was poured out, what did, what did Peter say? Acts 16, or 2, 16 and 17. He said, this is, they're not drunk as you think. This is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And then he, he quotes Joel. What's the point? We're in the last days. That was the fundamental key. They're like, hey, this, this is the fundamental evidence that all of these prophetic promises about the end are happening in our midst. And so we're living in the end times. They had that urgency, and you see this throughout the whole New Testament in all the letters. That we, we are God's end-time people living in the present evil age, bringing God's kingdom, showing people what heaven's like, and that's the whole point. So, Jesus coming set this future in motion, okay? He set this future in motion. The coming age is done, and we're waiting for his consummation. It's already the future's begun, not yet to be, been fulfilled. So as Christians, we're called to be living the life of the future now in the present age. Your kingdom come, your will be done right now on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're supposed to do is show people what heaven's like. That's the point. We're supposed to live the lifestyle and the values of heaven. Kingdom culture. <laughs> Come on. That's what we're supposed to do. Colony of heaven living now, showing people what heaven's like. Now, the one thing that distances us, in my opinion, from the New Testament church, because you always hear this, oh, if it was just like the book of Acts, right? You look, you read the book of Acts, you look at how the church is, at least in the West now, and you're like, wait a minute, something's fundamentally wrong. Why aren't we operating like they did? Why aren't we seeing the miracle signs and wonders like they did? Why don't we have a sense of urgency like they did? And I believe one of the main reasons is this, that, that we have gotten so far away from this end-time, quote-unquote, eschatological perspective. That's the fancy pants word for this end-time perspective, that we, were, we are living in the end right now. That we are God's people right now, bringing heaven to earth right now. They thought that we were in this day of the Lord, and I believe that because we've lost that sense of urgency, that we no longer see that, because we don't even think we're living in that time. We don't, right? It's been, the problem is we're 2,000 years removed, 2,000 years, of, and no one would have thought it, it would have lasted this long. Now we're 2,000 years removed from this, okay? So it's hard for us to have that sense of urgency, Right? They thought the Lord was going to, second coming was going to happen any time. So we have to go spread the good news of the kingdom. The fact that the kingdom is here, that heaven's here now in the present tense. God's reign is broken into history. And the second coming is going to happen any minute. Come join the party. This is the day of the Lord. So we have to somehow get back to that urgency that we are already living in the end. We are God's end time community, end time people right here and right now. And we're, the, our mandate is to show people what heaven is like, bringing heaven to earth. 
That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It seems so uh, high, the standards. That's just because he's saying, hey, guys, this is what heaven looks like. This is how people live in heaven. This is what, what heaven, so you're supposed to show people what heaven's like by living the Sermon on the Mount. It's all in the context of the kingdom of heaven, if you read the sermon. But we'll, sh- we'll, we'll talk about how you actually do that. It's all by the Spirit. Okay? So this perspective, this already not yet perspective, influence conditioned everything about them. Everything. The way they lived, they, the way they thought, the way they understood their own uh, place in the present world. Is all determined by this perspective, and that's why I spent so much time on it with the Kingdom of God series, and why the last couple of weeks I'm revisiting it in the context of the Spirit series because it's so important. This perspective influenced their entire theological outlook, perspective, how they thought and talked about Christ is to be understood in this framework. Salvation, the church, ethics, the present, the future. You know, it's so interesting. If you read the New Testament, they live so differently. Like if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul's like, you have the audacity to take someone to court in front of pagan judges. Don't you know you're going to be judging them? Don't you know you're going to be judging angels? Don't you know who you are? He's asking these questions. You're God's end time people. And you are going to the pagans to get, don't you have judges in your own midst who can judge these things? You see, we're 2,000 years removed from this, so it's so common for, for the values of this world to dictate how we live. It's so normal to go to court, right? And Paul appeals to the fact, hey guys, don't you know who you are? You are going to be judging them, and you're going to them for judgment? You're God's end-time people. Live like that. Paul, Paul appealed to that often. Live like heaven on earth and show. How are we going to be God's alternative to the world if we're not living like God's kingdom? If we're living according to the values and systems of this world, we're no different from the pagans is the point. We have to somehow get back to this. You know? Like, I don't know if that argument would work for most churches. If, you, if you're like, don't you know who you are? You guys are going to judge them. We'd probably be like, because we don't have the same idea. We don't have the same urgency. So we can't even really appeal to that anymore. And that, that's my, my point is we've got to get back to this somehow. Okay, and that's I'm, why I'm spending time on this. If we can recapture this eschatological existence that the early church had, I believe we can make a huge difference in the world. Think about it. If we were actually living like a, a, a colony of heaven, Paul says in Philippians 3.20, you guys are citizens of heaven right now. If we actually live that way, imagine how effective we could be. Just look at the book of Acts. That's how we're supposed to live. So that's why this is, this is important. And now how do we recapture this perspective is the question then. Okay, because we are 2,000 years removed. Our culture is totally different now. So how do we recapture this? I believe, and this is a key, is reflecting on their theological perspective, actually considering this is the way they thought, this is why they thought this way. Like, this was all presupposition to them, okay? Like, their ideas of the kingdom and what that was going to look like and what the day of the Lord was going to look like. So, so they didn't need someone explaining, hey, guys, this is what they thought but now that we're 2,000 years removed, we have to do that to get back. Oh, this is why they thought that way. This is how they thought, and this is why it's important for us. 
Because we live out what we most truly believe. So we need to reflect on, okay, this is how they believe. This is why they believe that way. And this is um, how we apply it in our own culture and day and age right here and right now. So our theology and experience of the Spirit must be more interwoven. Our theology and our experience of the Spirit. Those get, that's a false dichotomy when you make this word-spirit dichotomy. You know, you see that all the time, whether it's said or not. Oh, we're a word people, so we're really skeptical about this supernatural Holy Spirit stuff over here because we're so word, right? And then the spirit people, people who are into the charismatic movements and stuff, oh, you know, go, don't go to seminary, and they, they call it cemetery, and you know, all that. This is like this, you know, it's so silly. Guys, the Holy Spirit authored the Bible, He's the one who authored the Bible. So we shouldn't be like, oh, that's a waste of time to think about theology, because it's not. There's a reason God inspired people to write the Word. And if we can um, interweave them, the Spirit and the Word, fully embrace both 100%, that's so crucial for getting back to how we're supposed to be living. Because if we get back to how we're supposed to be living, we will live this way. We will live out what we actually believe fundamentally. And that's why they live that way, because that's what they believe fundamentally. So that's why I'm spending so much time on the theology of it, on the theology of the Spirit, because if we can somehow get back to biblical uh, understanding of the importance of the Holy Spirit in our day and age, because he's the key to the whole Christian walk in terms of uh, how we're supposed to live the life of the Spirit. Because you have to understand, the kingdom of God was known to them as the age of the Spirit, and we think that now even. When, what happens when you go to heaven? Your spirit's there, right? So the age of the spirit. How do you live the age of the spirit when we're in the age of the flesh? Through Christ, he gave us, through his death and resurrection, gave us the gift of the spirit so we can live the age of the spirit now in the present evil age to show people what heaven's like. Okay? The Holy Spirit's so important. And, and that's what we're developing through this series. So what I wanted to do today is talk a little bit more about the promise of the Holy Spirit and why they believe what they did. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in more depth in this because a couple weeks ago I went into the importance of the Holy Spirit in regards to understanding the new covenant. Then last week I talked about the gift of the Spirit and the resurrection of Christ as fulfillment of this new covenant. And today what I want to do is develop this more to show you these are the scriptures, there's one in particular, that they have, and you can see this influenced their whole perspective throughout the entire New Testament. This one scripture. Okay, and I'm going to show you three dimensions of these promises within this scripture that totally influenced especially Paul's perspective on this. Okay, so from their Old Testament heritage, the early church understood the Spirit's coming as fulfilling at least three related promises and expectations. First of all, the association with the Spirit in the New Covenant. We went through that in detail a couple times ago, if you're interested. The language of indwelling, and that's what I'm going to focus on a lot today, okay, and why that's important. And then the association of the Spirit with the imagery of the temple. Now, for the last couple times, I've been just kind of uh, uh, scratching, not even scratching the surface, showing you that, but I'm going to develop that more today and probably next time, the, the importance of the temple imagery. And if you've been here for a while, you'll understand why it was important. Because the temple, first the tabernacle, and then the temple was known as the place of the presence. But now we, as a gathered community, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The people of the presence. A presence-driven life. 
Okay, so the, the, by fulfilling the new covenant and the renewed temple promises. Okay, if you remember Ezekiel, the glory left. When Ezekiel, and they got taken captive, the, read Ezekiel 10, the glory left the temple. So that, that's why it became known as the age of the quenched spirit. Then, the last third of the book of Ezekiel is all about the restoration of the temple and the restored presence of God. Especially chapters 40 through the end. And so they had this hope of this restored temple. <laughs> then they went into devastation when they built the second temple and it wasn't anything like they were hoping because the glory didn't come back. So then it became the age of the quenched spirit. And then they're like, you know what? When the spirit comes back, that's the demarcation that the kingdom's here. That's where we're here now, living in that. So, the, I kind of mentioned this, but that's temple imagery is especially significant in this regard since the temple was always understood as the place of God's dwelling, the place of his glory. And Paul's like, guys, don't you know that you are to the temple of the Holy Spirit? You as a gathered community, not the building. I'm talking about us. as We are the temple of the Holy Spirit now. And us individually, okay? And the Spirit is how God presently dwells with this temple. In his temple. If you remember the second message I gave in the series, you can, the one theme threaded throughout the entire Bible from beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation is the presence of God. The lost presence of God and the restoration of the presence of God in its fullness. And you see that throughout in Exodus and everything. It's all about the presence of God. And the one thing that made the Israelites the people of God is that they were the people of the presence. And that's what distinguished them from all the other nations around the earth. That's why Moses pleaded, God, if your presence don't, doesn't go with us, do not lead, let us, lead us out from here. How will we be distinguished from anyone else on the earth if your presence doesn't go with us? And God relented and said, okay, my presence will go with you. That's the one thing that uh, uh, determined them as the people of God is that they had the presence in their midst, the pillar of fire and cloud in the tabernacle. God's glory dwelt in the midst of them, first in the tabernacle, then in the temple of Solomon. Okay, then he left. But then there's these promises. Hey, I'm going to rebuild the second temple, and when the day of the Lord comes, my spirit's coming back. The glory's coming back. So, so this, the important thing is, this dwelling of God's presence is both in the gathered community of believers, us, the people of the presence, and the heart of the individual believer. So we're going to focus more on that today, the individual believer, but the, the community, the gathered community element is so important. We're going to develop that more in the future. So the Spirit's role in the New Covenant. So we, most of us would know this, that the early church recognized the death of Christ as instituting the New Covenant as people. Whenever we take communion, we recite this, right? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. 25. After supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the New Covenant in my blood. So Jesus Christ... His death and resurrection initiated the new covenant. Absolutely. So Christ made the new covenant effective historically for the people of God through his death and resurrection. But the early church also recognized and saw the Spirit as the way that the new covenant is realized in among them. And, and a couple of times ago, we went through all of those promises and how they've been fulfilled and how they're like, this is evidence that we're in the new covenant because all these prophetic promises had the Holy Spirit as the basis of that evidence that the new covenant was here. 
So the Spirit is the key to the new covenant as a fulfilled reality in the lives of God's people. He's the evidence that all these promises have been fulfilled, and we're living in that time right now. We're living in the day of the Lord right now. And you know what's interesting? If you look throughout history of revivals and spirit movements, that they almost every time that I can think of, what became at the forefront of the evidence is eschatology. We're living in the end times. You just look at the Pentecostal movement. They called it the Latter-day Movement. Those who were initially in it. Why? Because they're like, these are these prophetic promises in the latter days I'll pour out my spirit upon, right? We're living in that time now. So, so whenever there's a spirit movement, a revival, often peep, the emphasis becomes eschatology at the forefront. That's not a coincidence. The Lord's coming back any time now. You just look at the Jesus people in the 60s and 70s. They thought Jesus was coming back any day. The spirit was moving. Okay, and that's the, so the Holy Spirit produces this urgency in us, I believe, because we realize, hey, wait a minute, this manifestation of the Spirit means this. All of these prophetic promises are happening right now, and the urgency comes back. But then, then we get complacent after, what, a hundred and some years after the day of Pentecost, or the uh, Azusa Street, and we're like, oh, I guess the Lord isn't coming back any minute now, and then we get, we get away from that. But it's important to get back to that urgency. So... As a result of their experience of the Spirit, they understood the Spirit's role, especially in terms, and this is what we're going to develop today, of this one portion of Scripture. Ezekiel 36, 26-27, and 37-4. You'll recognize this when I show it to you, but I'm going to, I'm going to read it anyway, because I want to show you how influential this was to the early church's understanding that we are now in the new covenant, we're now in the end times, because the Spirit is fulfilling this promise, these promises. So this is Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. Just, just listen and remember uh, some of the language I'm using, but I'll, I'll repeat it. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see how it becomes about the spirit. I'll put my spirit in you and he's going to motivate you to follow my decrees and keep my laws. And then fast forward to Ezekiel 37, verse 4 in particular, 14 rather, I should say 14 in particular. The valley of dry bones and it's all this prophetic uh, picture of the resurrection. The dry bones. And then he says, I'll raise you by my spirit. And I'll put my spirit in you, look at this, and you will live. Talking about the resurrection. Okay, so in light of those promises, when the spirit came back, the experience dimension of the spirit, that changed everything. They're like, man, all these promises about this new covenant are happening now because the spirit, this is happening. The spirit is being put in us and he's back in our midst. So, so I'm going to develop this by showing you this, okay? So the, the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, combines these themes from this portion of Scripture, this and others, but mainly this portion of Scripture, in a way that the coming of the Spirit into the life of the believer individually and the community, God fulfilled three dimensions, of this promise, and I'm going to go over each in detail so you can see this for yourself. 
But there's three dimensions in this portion of Scripture I just showed you that clearly have been fulfilled at the coming of the Spirit. And this, you can see, influenced Paul and other writers totally. So the first one is I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. The second one is I'll put my spirit in you and you will live. And the third one, I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. Those are so important for understanding the new covenant. Okay, so I'm going to just go over each in turn, and you'll see when I show you this. So the first dimension that this promise of the new covenant is being fulfilled in the spirit is that God's going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. So in the new covenant, God would give his people a new heart and replace their heart of stone. You'll remember that language from when I read that. You can also, and I'm going to show you just a bit of this, Jeremiah 31, 33 to, thir, uh, 31 to 33, Ezekiel actually picked this promise up when he said what I just showed you. But I'll show you that in a minute. This was made possible because he would also give them a new spirit. So Paul expresses this theme clearly, and I'm going to just go over this to show you, in 2 Corinthians 3, 1 to 6. So I'm going to start in verse 2. You yourselves are our letter, just remember this, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you're a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Remember that language. Look at this. Jeremiah 31, 30, and I'm going to just show you 31 and 33. This is the first time the language of the new covenant is explicitly stated in the prophets. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with you. And dot, 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 you can read that. Because he says, you broke my old covenant and so forth. But look at verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I'll put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Right? That's what, and what did Paul say? You are a letter of Christ, not with think, but written by the spirit of the living God on your hearts. Right? He's basically quoting this. But then he goes on. Look at this, verse 4. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but we're comp- our competence comes from God. He has made us competent ministers of what? A new covenant. And look at how he defines the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. It's the new covenant of the spirit. And he says, for the letter kills, but what? The spirit gives life. It's the new covenant of the spirit who gives life. Now look at this, Ezekiel, that should say 37, 14. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. He gives us life. He's the one who gives us life. He's the one who raises us from the dead. So all throughout the New Testament, sometime I'll, I'll show you the rest of the chapter, he makes these distinguishes. When he distinguishes the old from the new, it's always about the Spirit. So in, in, this, in this whole chapter, Paul makes this considerable point that the Old Covenant was written in stone. And this symbolizes the stony hearts of the people. You remember, I will remove your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. That's an allusion to that. And the New Covenant is written on the heart by the Spirit. Okay, so the second dimension now, that was the first. The second is God will dwell in his people, both individually and corporately. And I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but those are the two scriptures. I'll put my spirit in you, and I'll put my spirit in you, and you'll live. So the outpouring of the spirit meant that God had fulfilled these promises to dwell once again in and among his people. Remember, the presence of God. 
is restored now by the Spirit. And now he's dwelling in us by his Spirit. So above everything else is the fulfillment of the new covenant. The Spirit marked the return of the lost presence of God. And if you're interested, like I said, the second message I gave in this series, I talk all about that throughout the Old Testament. This theme is found, first of all, in the scriptures that locate the Spirit within the believer. Okay? So the Spirit is spoken of being in you or in us. Now, I'm going to just show you this. And I already mentioned this, but the temple imagery is really significant for that reason. Okay, so this first location of God's presence in the new covenant is within his people individually. And we're talking, remember, the theme of this year, the presence-driven life. This is why this new covenant is all about the restoration of the presence of God by his spirit. That's one really important factor in all this. All right, so I'm just going to show you some scriptures on this. 1 Corinthians 6.19, you'll probably recognize these. Do you not know that your bodies are what? The temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you, whom you have received from God, Paul asks. We are individually now the temple of the Holy Spirit. All of that, we're a people of the presence. 1 Thessalonians 4.8. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, what's interesting about this, the English doesn't translate it this way because it's such an awkward thing to say, but the original Greek in this verse and in others actually says God gives his Holy Spirit into you. That's actually what the Greek says. He gives the Holy Spirit into you. And this is a direct quote from the Ezekiel passages I showed you. The the Greek, so this expression comes from the Septuagint. And if you don't know what that is, essentially... Uh, the, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek in the intertestamental period but between Malachi and John the Baptist. And this, a lot of New Testament uh, writers like Paul read the Septuagint. That was their Bible, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Okay? So a lot of times they quote from the Septuagint in the New Testament. And that's why sometimes, how many of you have ever noticed that when some, sometimes the New Testament writers quote something and then you go back to the original, it doesn't exactly say that. Do you know what I'm saying? Why? Because often they're quoting from the Septuagint and that's how the Septuagint translated it. Does that make sense? And it doesn't always match up to the original Hebrew, how our, our modern translators translated. Does that make sense? Anyway, totally influenced the New Testament church. But the point is, this is straight out of, I'll get, put my spirit into you, straight out of the Septuagint. So Paul's quoting this, essentially, these scriptures that I'm talking about. Look at Romans 8, 9 to 11. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. Someday I'm going to go all into that. He's actually talking about this eschatological idea that we are now in the realm of the spirit. Paul says that all the time. We are now in the realm of the spirit. What's he talking about? We are in the, living in the age to come, in the age of the Spirit. Now, we're not in the age of the flesh. The age of the flesh is pre-Christ. The age of the flesh is pre-Spirit. You are not to be people of the flesh in this present evil age. You're supposed to be people of the Spirit. And he, goes, he says this, you're actually in that realm. You're in the realm of the Spirit if, indeed, the Spirit of Christ lives in you, or the Spirit of God. You see that? That's the one thing, the evidence that we are now part of this new covenant. If the Spirit of God lives in you, you are in the realm of the Spirit. Then he goes on to say, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. You see, that's the one identity marker of whether you're a Christian or not, is whether you have the Holy Spirit. It's the one thing. 
throughout the scriptures. And, and again, someday I'll show you that when we talk more about salvation. But you see that right here. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ because that's the one evidence that you are a new covenant believer in Christ. Because of all these fulfillments of these promises, the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's why the Holy Spirit is so important in the Bible. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life. You remember that from Ezekiel 37, 14. Because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. And last time we talked about that, you remember, the already not yet. And the metaphor is the Holy Spirit, the seal of the day of redemption. The first fruits guaranteeing that you're going to be raised from the dead. The point is, it's a done deal. And in the context of Ezekiel 36, 14, that's what it is. Raising the dry bones from the dead. I'm going to put my spirit in you and raise you from the dead. So because we have the Holy Spirit, we're guaranteed this is what's going to happen. Ephesians 5, 18. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Individually, we're supposed to be continually filled with the Spirit. And now the location, talking about theology now, the location, so where's the Holy Spirit located? In your heart. And this comes directly from those passages from the Old Testament. But what I'm going to show you is look at this. Throughout the New Testament, they, Paul and others say this all the time. I'm just going to quickly go through this. Look at 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22. Now it is God who makes us, both of you and us, stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set a seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. Galatians 4, 6, and 7. Because you're his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. So we're heirs of God and we're his children because we have the spirit of God living in us, in our hearts. Romans 5, 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who God's been given to us, or as God's given us. Romans 2.29. No, a person is a Jew who's one inwardly, and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. Okay, he's distinguishing the old from the new covenant. By the Spirit. Not, or sorry, not by the written code. That's what distinguishes us from the Old Testament believers. We're not under law anymore. We're not under law anymore. That's all irrelevant because why? The Spirit. Now we live by the Spirit. That's why. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. I already showed you 2 Corinthians uh, 3, 1 to 3, but if you remember, we're not written in ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not with tablets of stone, but on tablets of humans' hearts. We're talking about the heart now. Now, what's interesting, and I already mentioned this earlier, but the temples, also the church, is a gathered community. That's why, you know, when we, we worship and we gather, the presence of the Spirit is so strong. How many of you felt the Holy Spirit earlier when we were worshiping? Yeah, come on. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that's why this is so important. We are supposed to host the presence of God. We are supposed to be carriers of the presence as God's temple so that when the people come in, they're like, God's in your midst. You see that in 1 Corinthians 14, prophetic words, and it says, hey, if you're prophesying and an unbeliever comes in and you reveal the secrets of his heart, he's going to fall to his knees and say, God is in your midst. Because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. People are supposed to encounter God in that way. The reality of God through his spirit. So, then, so this in turn becomes a language of dwelling in now. Dwelling in his temple, in the community of believers. 
So 2 Corinthians, again, I'm going to just give you a bunch of verses on this to show you. 2 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Now he's talking about the church as a gathered people here. And I'm going to talk about that more someday because some people read this individually. It's not individually. That's a plural. The you there is plural. Okay, it's not an individual. Anyway, in English we don't have plural for you, but... If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. 2 Corinthians 6.16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. He's quoting Ezekiel 37.26 right here. The promise of the new covenant is God is going to dwell in the midst of his people. And that's why it's so significant that we're the temple of the living God right now by his spirit. He's walking among us, dwelling among us. These are fulfillments of all these prophetic words. Paul actually quotes a couple other New Testament passages right after that, but I'm going to move on. So, Paul understands God to be present among his people now by the presence of the spirit in the life of the community. And that's why it's so important. We have the honor and privilege of being God's temples, of being a people, a colony of heaven who hosts the presence of the living God in our midst, and that's what's supposed to distinguish us from everybody else. So in making that point, I already said this, he quotes Ezekiel 37, 27, my dwelling place will be with them. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. We're the temple of the living God now. We're the restoration. We're the restored second temple that all these promises were about. It's Amazing. The temple not built with human hands, but by the hands of the living God. We're God's temple. So this points forward to the ultimate expression of the language of the indwelling, the imagery of the temple. And look at Ephesians 2, 21 to 22. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become, become a dwelling in which God lives by what? His spirit. We are the temple of the living God, the presence of God by his spirit. The last dimension of the fulfillment of these promises. The third one. And this is a direct quote you'll see from the scripture. The law of the spirit. We're no longer under law. We're saved by grace through faith. Then the question becomes, how in the world then do you do righteousness in the new covenant if law is no longer applicable? Because the Old Testament Jewish uh, heritage, of course, defined righteousness in terms of keeping the law. So now if the law is done away with, how in the world do you live a righteous life? And over and over and over again, Paul says, by the Spirit. Okay, the whole book of Galatians is about that. And someday we'll go in detail on that. And you may have heard me talk about that before. But I'm going to briefly show you that right now. Okay. So, this new spirit is no other than God's spirit. I'm referring to Ezekiel 36, 26. Who will, remember, enable God's people to follow his decrees. Remember, he says that. The spirit's fulfillment of this theme is, I already said this, Paul's answer to the question of what happens to righteousness when one does away with the Old Testament law. Look at this. Romans 8, 1 to 4. I'm going to read this to you so you can see this for yourselves. So it's just one scripture. Therefore, there is now no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at this, verse 2. Because though through Christ Jesus, what? The law of the Spirit. The law of the Spirit who gives life 
has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he who condemns sin in the flesh, look at this, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see that? Because we live according to the Spirit, we are fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. So therefore, if you're led by the Spirit, you are no longer under the law. And I'll show you where he says that explicitly. The point is the purpose and the intent of the law is now fulfilled in the new covenant by the Spirit. As the Spirit lives in us, effecting the righteousness of God. So the Spirit has come to do what the law couldn't do because it didn't have the Spirit who brings real righteousness. The Spirit, we had to be saved through Christ's death and resurrection so that we could actually host the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We had to be redeemed and sanctified. Okay? But now that that's happened, we have the Holy Spirit and we're supposed to live the lifestyle and the values of heaven here in the present age through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So the Spirit is the key to the new covenant and the end of law observance. I'm just going to give you a couple more scriptures on this. Romans 7, 6, look at this. But now, present tense, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Talking about the new covenant. Not in the old way of the written code. We're no longer under law. We are to be led by the Spirit. That's the whole Christian walk. That's how we're supposed to live a righteous walk in this age. Galatians, here's just a couple of scriptures from Galatians 16, 18, 25. So I say what? Walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 18, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Okay? Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That's what the Christian walk is supposed to be. Living, walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. Because he produces God's righteousness. And right in, in verse 22, he lists the fruit of the Spirit, which is God, him producing God's rich, righteous character in us through his Spirit. But more on that in another day. So how do we do righteousness since the law is done away with by the Spirit? That's the key. In the new covenant, that's how we live righteously now. We're no longer under law. We live by the Spirit. Whenever Now, this is what's interesting about this. Whenever Paul corrects people in the church, individually and corporately, he often does it by appealing to the presence of the Spirit, not by the law. If it was the Old Testament, he would say, hey, look, this is law number 421. Thou shalt not do this, therefore don't do it. Paul doesn't do that. Okay, and I'm going to show you what he does instead. Because now we're under the law of the Spirit. <laughs> okay, so you're going to remember some of these. I mentioned them earlier, but think, I'm going to show you contextually now, in light of that, what he's doing here. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 to 8, right before this, he's saying, guys, do not do sexual immorality anymore. Like the pagans who go to, like, because this was normal to them. People are, <laughs> people are really hard on the Corinthians in the early church because Paul had to rebuke them for sexual immorality. You guys got to understand. It's kind of like our culture now. Back then, 
sex and, and morality had nothing to do with each other. Nothing. They did not link sexual practices to morality. So Paul had to shift their mind. They're not the Jews, like the Jews did, but not the pagans. They're, what's wrong with that? This is normal. They just went to the temple prostitutes. That was what they did. So Paul had to correct them, say, guys, look, this is actually immoral, and this is why. Okay? So you have to understand, that was totally foreign to them. And think about how common like, our culture now, it's exactly what's happening now. People don't really, unless you're a Christian, don't link sex with immorality, sexual immorality with morality. It's just normal. But like I said, think about this. We are now in such a pagan culture, so similar to to the early church's culture in these ways, and the gospel thrived. So that's good news. The gospel can and should be thriving in our context that is so pagan. How? Getting back to this. Getting back to early Christianity presence-driven life, living in those end time with the, by the Holy Spirit, showing people what heaven's like, radical encounters with the living God. But anyway, look what he says. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Look at this. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Notice how he's appealing to the Holy Spirit here. He's not saying, guys, it's against the law. Nothing to do with the law. The fact of the matter is, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're supposed to be living according to the Spirit, walking according to the Spirit. And if you do these other things, you're living according to the flesh, the old way, age way of thinking. So it's the presence of the Holy God himself by his Holy Spirit whom they're rejecting if they reject Paul's call to holy living. Same thing in 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20. Sexual immorality again. Look at this. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom God you've received from God? You're not of your own. You're bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Look, at he's appealing to the Spirit again. He's not saying anything about, look at this law is saying this. you got to do this to, to obey the law. He's saying the Spirit's living in you guys. Quit doing this stuff that's according to the flesh. So, Paul appeals to the presence of the Spirit in their lives in the context of the saving work of Christ. He's saying, hey guys, look at this. God purchased you through Christ. Now you're the temple of the Holy Spirit through Christ. And you're, you don't own yourself anymore. God owns you because the Spirit, precisely because the Spirit's in you, you've got to act according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. So all that to say, one of the major dimensions of the Spirit life is ethical life that the Spirit produces. He produces God's righteousness in us. Okay? And, and we're definitely going to develop that again someday, further. But the point is, God's presence in the new covenant is within his people sanctifying their present existence and stamping them with his eternity so that we can live out the lifestyle and values of eternity in the present age by the Spirit. Live the age of the Spirit now in the present tense. This goes in the community too. I'm going to just show you one scripture. This goes beyond personal piety. He does this in community context too. He appeals to the Spirit. 
Look at this. He says in verse 3, Ephesians 4, it says, Make every effort to keep what? The unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Then later in Ephesians, this is interesting. He says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it might benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. That's what he's appealing to. If you guys do these things in the community, you're grieving the Holy Spirit, and that's why it's wrong. It's not because it's breaking the law. Because the law has nothing to do with it anymore. It has to do with the spirit in your midst. Now act like God's people because you have the presence of God. So he says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ and God forgave you. Living God's future in the present. Heaven to earth. Okay, so I'm going to just fast forward, Jennifer, because I'm going to go into those other ones in the future. If you just go, what should we do in light of all this? Okay, the point is, God appeals to the Spirit, not the law anymore, because we're supposed to live, that's how we do it now. Okay, so those three dimensions of the Ezekiel promise are being fulfilled in all of these ways. And I just have that up there again. He'll give you us a new heart and put a new spirit in us. He'll put a spirit in us and we'll live. And he'll put a spirit in us and move us to follow his decrees. You see how that's fulfilled over and over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. It's all about the Spirit in our midst, the presence of God. And that's how we're supposed to live. Ultimately, the Spirit is the fulfillment of the promise that God himself would once again be present with his people. The implications are considerable in terms of what it means for us individually and corporately to be the people of God. And that's why this is so important. That's why this is so important. Okay? The Spirit is God's own personal presence in our lives and in our midst. He leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He's grieved when his people don't reflect his character and, and thus reveal his glory. He's present in our worship, and we'll talk about more of that someday. So the whole existence of the Christian church is to be a colony of heaven living out the lifestyle and the values of eternity in the present age by his Spirit. This is where the Spirit becomes the key to our Christian walk because without the Spirit, we can't live this genuinely eschatological perspective. We can't live the book of Acts without the Spirit. We can't. It's important. So it's important for us to grasp these realities by experiencing them. Not just talking about them. I'm talking about them, but we have to experience them to truly capture the early church's understanding. These are truth realities. If you see it in the Bible, it's possible we have to get back to that way of thinking. This is possible to live that way. So we need to retool our thinking where we understand and experience the Spirit as the personal presence of the eternal God in our lives and our midst. I'm going to end on here advertising these scriptures. The apostolic prayers. Notice how Paul prays. He starts off each and every one of these prayers by appealing to, by praying for the Spirit. Every one of them. Colossians 1.9, we continually ask to God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Ephesians 1.17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Ephesians 3.16, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. And what I want to say Let's pray these. How does this become a reality in our lives? How do we actually do this practically? A major key is praying for this reality, which is what Paul does. 
praying that the Spirit would give us wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of His will so we can live a life worthy of Him and please Him in every way and bear fruit in every good work and grow in the knowledge of God. This is all by the Spirit. So what I want to, I want to end on this because, you know, I'm, I'm giving you all this. This is why the Spirit's important. This is why, now how do we do it? A major key is praying that we would actually experience the Spirit in a way where this revelation becomes, that's why Paul had to say this, that he would open the eyes of our heart, he goes on to say. Okay? Because it, so it takes a revelation for us to grasp these realities and to walk them out and to actually live this way. Okay? So on that note, I'm going to pray for us. Father, I just thank you so much for your spirit. I thank you so much for your presence. I thank you so much for the honor and privilege it is for us to walk this life of the Spirit. The coming age is here present now in the evil age, and we get to show this present evil age what heaven's like by your Spirit. Help us to live as a colony of heaven. Help us to get back to biblical Christianity where they walk the life of the Spirit practically, demonstrating to people what heaven's like. That sickness would flee, that disease would flee, that demons would flee, because the presence of the Spirit is so present tense now that the reality of heaven is is manifest in each and every one of their lives. Help us to understand why the gifts of the Spirit are so important. Because the Spirit's manifesting the character of heaven in the present tense. The powers of the age to come. Help us to taste of those realities to such an extent that we make a difference in our world, in this pagan culture that's so prevalent around us. Let the gospel of your Son thrive in this pagan culture. Help us to be the hands and feet of your Son, Jesus Christ, by your Spirit. Let your kingdom manifest here and now. Let heaven come to earth and let us be the people, the conduit through which your heaven and your kingdom comes. And your will be done in Ottawa as it is in heaven. <laughs> Help us to grasp these realities and to live and walk them out by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So if any of you would like prayer for anything, we'd like to offer prayer. Yeah. Um, and if you want, for anything, but particularly if you want to encounter God, if you haven't experienced his presence before and you want to, we love to pray for you. We love for this, these experience because this, is, this isn't about knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's about getting to the place where we have a framework for which encounters are normal because that's what it's supposed to be. We're supposed to live the, the life of the Spirit.